Well, here at Christ Church, we believe that when we invest in children, we can transform communities. And we just saw a testimony uh, of that life change happening in the Mathari Valley with our wonderful mission partners there. But we believe that we can invest in children in a way that, that shapes the greater Chicagoland area and lifts families and children out of tough situations in some of the hardest neighborhoods in Chicago. We believe that when we care and cherish children, that we can transform our communities and impact those in our very own backyard. And so today, we're going to take an opportunity to talk about what it means to practice the spiritual, uh, the spiritual practice and discipline of caring for children. Let's take a moment just to center our hearts with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come into this place. Lord, we thank you that you are active and alive in our commitment to children. We thank you that when we are present with little ones, Lord, that you are there, that we are not doing this on our own. Lord, we thank you that you are a God that embraces our kids and draws them into your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would be a better reflection of your heart in the way that we care for the little ones of this church, of our neighborhoods, of our city, and of this world. We pray this in your name. Amen. The early church was known for its treatment of children. They were known as a community that elevated the status of a child to equal to that of an adult, of their parents. And you see, this was countercultural because society at the time saw children as a nuisance. The Greek and Roman society saw, saw children as getting in the way of life, as something less than human. For families that weren't very well off, an additional child was just an extra mouth to feed. And for those in the upper class, a child was, was this wild and untamable beast. And so it became commonplace in this culture to participate in the abhorrent practice of infant side and child exposure. Quite literally, families would take their little ones that were unwanted and they would tie a weight to the child and throw the child into a body of water. Now, if as a parent they couldn't deal with that guilt, they didn't want to be culpable in the actual murder of their child, instead they would just take their little baby, their new one, and they would lay the child out in the street or expose it to the wilderness and leave it there justifying their conscience by saying that certainly if God has a plan for this child, he will intervene. Well, God did intervene, and he intervened through the early church because the early church not only taught against this horrible practice, but they were also intentional in going out into the streets and finding these children that had been left exposed to the elements bringing them into their homes, nourishing them back to life, and then raising them in their families as their own. Now remember, the early church was not particularly well off, so they didn't necessarily have the means to carry this financial burden, but they felt convicted that Jesus in his teachings and his gospel had been clear 
about the role and significance of the child in the kingdom of God. And so they felt compelled to love and cherish children in a countercultural way. This past week, we came together and we gathered and we talked about each of our spiritual gifts. We outlined these five ministerial spiritual gifts that each one of us has been given, and we talked about the certain characteristics, passions, and callings that each of those that are gifted in one of those five ways is equipped to live into the community and the sphere of influence that they are a part of. We said that In using these five gifts, you can take your other six days of the week and you can make a drastic and transformative impact on the kingdom of God. Well, I feel convicted that we have added a sixth gift to this list. We say that some of us are gifted as apostles, others are gifted as prophets, others pastors, teachers, evangelists, and then the sixth one is some are gifted to work with children. But you see, in doing so, we have shifted the responsibility of caring for the future generations of the church off of our shoulders and onto God's. We've said, well, I am not equipped to care and love for kids, but I'm sure there's someone else out there that has. And so we have sidestepped our responsibility, our call to invest in that future of the church regardless of our giftings, by saying that somebody else must be better at this because I feel uncomfortable when I'm with kids or, or I'm not really good at teaching the Bible lessons or, or, or sometimes I just get so distracted. Well, you see, in Jesus' teaching, he doesn't leave room for that type of spiritual gymnastics. Instead, it seems clear that Jesus outlines cherishing children, not as a spiritual gift, but rather as a spiritual practice, as a spiritual discipline, one in which all of us are called to invest. And in the two primary passages in which Jesus talks about this spiritual discipline, he outlines one way that it is going to impact a child, and then a second way that it will begin to impact your heart and yourself. You see, because I feel convicted that when we are intentional about spending time with children, when we cherish them fully, that we begin to transform their lives. In transforming their lives, we shape the future of the church. And in shaping the future of the church, we prepare our hearts for a more full picture of the kingdom of God. So let's take a peek at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to first look at verses 1 through 4. It says, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, I imagine, rolled his eyes and called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to fully understand the context in which this conversation happens. This group of disciples, these 12 men that Jesus has called to enter into the active participation in building his kingdom on this earth, are standing in a group, and they're arguing over which of them is God's great gift to humanity. 
They're asking, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you are the greatest in eternity, then surely you are the greatest to ever walk this earth. And so they're discussing, they're having this conversation. I'm sure that they're pulling out their resumes and talking about certain numbers of conversions. And and they're trying to argue which of us will be standing at the right hand of God throughout all of eternity because surely it's one of these 12. And so they have the audacity to turn to Jesus and ask him that very question. And like I said, I imagine Jesus rolls his eyes and and is thinking to himself, what do you not understand about the first shall be last and the last shall be first? And and he, he looks around and he sees a child and he brings that child into this circle of adults. You see, children, for the most part, are rather helpless. They are entirely dependent on the adults in their life to perform even the most menial tasks. I am acutely aware of this with a toddler at home. Shepherd cannot feed himself. Shepherd cannot change his diapers. Shepherd cannot bathe himself. He requires his mother and I's attention in everything that he does. But Shepherd really right now is going through this stage where he has a heart to help. He wants to help out around the house. He loves picking up his toys and trying to put them into bins. And one thing that he particularly cherishes is picking up the mail. And so each day, uh, my wife and I will take the mail out of the mailbox and then we'll put it on the kitchen floor. And Shepard will see the mail on the floor and he'll kind of shriek in excitement and waddle over to the kitchen and he'll begin picking it up because he wants to give it back to us. He's like, I have no idea why you dropped it on the floor, but let me help. And so he goes and he'll bend down and he'll pick up one piece and then he'll clutch it tightly against his chest. And then he bends down to pick up the next piece. And as he goes to clutch this one against his chest, the first one falls to the ground again. And so he'll go down and he'll repeat this cycle endlessly until one of us picks him up and he begins giggling and laughing in our arms. And so Jesus has taken one of these children and he's placed him in the circle of these adults that are arguing about who has the greatest status in all of eternity. And he points to a child that can't even pick up a pile of mail And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you can display the dependence and humility of a little one like this, you're not even going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, I'm struck by the fact that when we are with children, when we spend time with children, we begin to understand our place in the kingdom of God. You see, because when you spend time with a child, suddenly all of the responsibilities that you have in your surrounding life begin to melt away. Suddenly you stop thinking about how good I am at this, this, and this, and all of the lists of accomplishments that I have achieved, and you begin to see their heart and their humility. And I think if we understand their heart and humility within this context— that it's a prerequisite to our entrance into the kingdom of heaven, we offer God an opportunity to begin to shape our heart in humility to recognize that much like a child that can't pick up the mail, we can do nothing right aside from God. And it is only upon his foundation and through his grace 
that we have any opportunity to even enter into eternity with him. You see, Jesus then continues on in this passage in Matthew 18, and he adds one final statement. And if anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. You see, first, we recognize that it is in a child's humility that we understand our place in the kingdom of heaven. But second, we recognize that when we are with children, when adults and kids are together, God is present there. God is present in those interactions. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to actually be together? It might surprise you to hear that right now, at this very time in history, there are more parents spending physical time with their children than at any other point throughout the course of history. Parents are physically present in their children's lives more than they ever have been before. But at the same time, there are more parents in the workforce than at any other point in history as well. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are these two things held in tension? And I realize that it's likely because the technology that we have at our disposal allows us to be responding to email and on a conference call across the country or world while we stand on the sideline of a soccer game. You see, because of technology, we are able to bring our work with us. And so while more of us are working than ever before, because of this gift of technology, we are able to actually be with children. But if I were to pull this room and ask you, does technology allow you to be more intentional in investing with your children or less, I imagine most of us would say less. We would probably think about our kids as they spent hours on Fortnite or they Instagrammed and snapped from the dinner table and, and we would say if they would just put down their phones and put down their screens, we could really get to this business of being together and welcoming Christ's presence in our home. It's very easy to point our fingers at children, and rightfully so, because did you know that the average four-year-old spends four hours of screen time a day? Four years old. The typical onset of regular consumption of media and screens is four months of age. And so it's easy to understand how technology, while it's bringing us together, is also emotionally, spiritually, and cognitively driving a wedge between us and our families. But don't let yourself off the hook too easily. Because the average adult checks their email 77 times a day. The average adult switches apps or tasks or activities on one of their smart devices every 45 seconds for an average of 566 switches in any one given day. We are more distracted than we have ever been. And so while we are physically present, we are emotionally distant. And this distance, this separation, is causing some significant problems in child development. Last year, a group of three child psychologists brought together 40 parents, and they split them up into two test groups. 
They had 20 parents and their two-year-olds in one test group and 20 parents and their two-year-olds in another. And in the one test group, or actually in both test groups, they were going to teach their children two new words. In the one test group, they were going to have uninterrupted time, 30 minutes to teach your children uh, these two words, no technology, no distractions, just you and your child learning these words. And in the other group, the parents were going to have that same 30-minute period of time, but they were going to receive one 30-second phone call 15 minutes into the experiment. So not a significant distraction, but, but one momentary distraction that would pull them away from teaching their child. The group in which the parents were uninterrupted, every single child learned the two words. And the group in which the parents received one small distraction, not one of those children learned the words. You see, our distraction has significant cognitive implications. And I imagine that if that level of distraction can shape how your child develops mentally, then it must have drastic implications on how they are developing spiritually. If we believe that when we come together with our children, they experience God in a real and tangible way, then we need to be serious about putting away our distractions. We need to be intentional about creating spaces where our child will experience God fully without us being pulled away by work or friends or media. And we need to make those places sacred in our homes, in our families, and in the places that we engage with children in our community. Because when we do that, God enters into our homes. God enters into our togetherness. And children experience that, and so do we. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, continues in a similar vein in teaching his disciples about the importance of the spiritual practice of cherishing children. It says, One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. You see, this concept of childlike faith is one that we have heard many times as we grow up. It teaches us that we need to be more humble and dependent, that we need to embrace and accept the truths of God without doubts, but I think it goes much deeper. And you see, Jesus here recognizes that in the spiritual practice of being with children, we are better equipped to tune our hearts to the purposes of God. Right now, I am in a particularly exhausting season of ministry. About seven months ago, I changed into a new role that carried with it new responsibilities. And I've got to be honest, I've felt a little bit like I'm drinking from the fire hose. Every day, I feel like I'm not living up to the expectations I've set for myself, and I'm certainly not living up to the expectations of others. I feel like I'm carrying this heavy weight of anxiety and stress in my heart. But when I come home 
and I open the door to my car, I see my little toddler in the window banging against the pane of glass. I can hear him shrieking through the walls, and I open the door, and he waddles over to me, and he's shaking uncontrollably, and he holds his hands up, and I lift him up to give him a hug, and I think to myself, if only I was a child again. If only I didn't have all of these responsibilities, if only I wasn't plagued with insecurity, if only I didn't have to worry about who was going to pay the bills and who was going to provide the next meal for our family, and I could just invest in the love of my family, and I could just be brought pure joy by the hug of my father, then life would be good. I'm struck that this is actually what Jesus means by childlike faith. You see, we live in a culture that teaches children to become adults. But I think Jesus envisioned a kingdom in which adults were taught to be children. You see, because imagine for a second that you process the world like a toddler processes the world. First, you would experience, as we stated before, a deep sense of humility and dependency upon God. But next, and I think this one's the most important because this is the challenge that I have in entrusting that kind of life. Oftentimes when I think about truly living out my faith in a childlike dependency, just simply going to God and being in his presence and experiencing his love, I think to myself, yeah, but who's going to pay the bills? Yeah, but... How am I going to eat? You see, a child doesn't worry about those things. A child trusts that their parents will provide for them. A child trusts that when they get into the car with their parents that they know where they're going. A child trusts that they will have a bed to sleep in in that night. And I don't experience that same trust with God. If we had childlike faith, we would be able to engage in forgiveness in a way that we've never done before. Children can be in a throwdown fight with their siblings and then 30 minutes later playing Legos together. You see, children are optimistic about the world around them. A little child will go to a complete stranger to ask for help tying their shoe. I have never been in more conversations with strangers than I have in this past year because as I walk through the grocery store with Shepard in the cart, he is waving and smiling to people like he's Miss America. <laughs> and every single person stops me and they want to talk to Shepard and they want to know how old he is because a child sees in people the good and not their failures and shortcomings. Children experience love and joy in their purest sense. And in awe and wonder, they are struck by God's creation in a way that I haven't experienced in years. This is a picture of my son, Shepherd at the zoo. And we have a membership there, and we love going because every single time Shepherd sees one of the animals, he screeches in joy and excitement, and he points at it and just runs straight towards it. Imagine if that is how we responded to God's creation around us. How would that shift our, our outset? How would that shift how we saw the world and experienced God's love for us? And you see, the only way to truly embrace childlike faith is by being present with children. Because I find that that joy is contagious. 
And I find that I get a whole lot more excited when I see a giraffe at the zoo than I would have a year and a half ago. You see, when we are intentional about spending time with children, God begins to shape our hearts so that we become more in tune with his kingdom purposes rather than our own. I want to look back at that Mark 10 passage. 13 through 16 again says that these parents were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples were were scolding the parents and pushing them away. And and I want you to give the disciples a little bit of a break here because Jesus is on his way to the cross and he hasn't told the disciples that explicitly, but they can feel this weight. They can see this anticipation in him. And so they're just trying to clear out these crowds of people so that Jesus can get to where he needs to be. But when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with the disciples He was angry with them. Jesus is angry at two times in all of the gospel messages. The first is when he walks into the temple and sees that the Pharisees have turned it into a marketplace for earthly gain, and he flips the tables over. The second is this passage, when he sees that his disciples are inhibiting the littlest ones from coming to him. And so he says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. We've been talking a lot during this series about reaping the harvest, about going into our communities and drawing people in in a way that transforms the kingdom of God for eternity. Did you know that 64% of all believers made their decision to follow Christ before the age of 14 years old. If we are serious about multiplying the kingdom of God, then it begins by investing in the lives of the children that surround us. And let me tell you, this is not just a parent thing. This is for those that have grandchildren, for those that have nieces and nephews, for those that have neighbors, for those that ever encounter children. I want you to think about your attitude towards a child when they come running past you and cut you off into the grocery store. I want you to think about your attitude towards the child that sits behind you in the movie theater and continues to kick the headrest. I want you to think about the attitude that you have towards the the teenagers that are living on your street that seem to always be milling around and staying out too late and making too much noise. Does your love for them, does your attitude towards them convey Jesus' kingdom message about their identity in eternity? Or does it look a whole lot more like that of the Greek and Roman society that saw children as a nuisance? Until we are able to treat children like they are not just half adults, We will not be able to live in this call to cherish children and invite them into God's family in a real and significant way. So as we leave today, let us recognize that cherishing children is not a spiritual gift. Instead, it is a spiritual mandate. It is something that each and every one of us is called to regardless of our stage of life. And let us be intentional about investing in this next generation of our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that cherishes children. 
Lord, that you have built a kingdom that is based upon the principle that none of us are worthy, but all of us are welcome. Lord, we pray today that our lives and our treatment of your littlest disciples would reflect your heart for them and not our cultures. Lord, we pray that we would be shaped and changed in a way that allows us to experience your heart more fully, humbly coming before you and engaging in a childlike faith. And we pray that in doing so, we would be prepared to reap the great harvest in anticipation of your kingdom to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.